Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, you live in Atlanta, Georgia. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, or we live in Decatur, Georgia, wherever. We're in the the, the vast sprawl that that, that we call the city of Atlanta. And uh, you have therefore been to the bodies exhibit because I think it's been entombed here in the city for (laughs) like a decade now. Yeah, actually, I probably was one of the first people who was lining up to see that exhibit, sure that it would be gone within weeks and I would never have a chance to see these plasticized cadavers frolicking around playing basketball. Yeah, we had no idea that we would see uh, flyers and and, uh, posters for the bodies exhibit for almost the next 10 years, it it feels like. On uh, like every surface uh, imaginable, on the MARTA train, it just gets to where you're bored with it. You're just on your commute. You're you're reading a book. You look up. Oh, there's a, a flayed Chinese man. Yeah. Although every once in a while, it will sort of catch me off guard. Like if I come up an escalator and I saw I see this raw imagery of this physical body uh-huh. in front of me, I will be kind of shocked a bit because it's really. I mean, it's the human body stripped to its bare essence. It's a reminder that we die, that we are this material. And we're ephemeral beings that this material, it rots, it leaves. But the question is, is taking a cadaver, removing its skin, plasticizing it, and then rearranging it, is this really a confrontation with death? Yeah, because what goes through your mind when you confront this, uh, this image of this, uh, this flayed body that's been, uh, that's been essentially turned to plastic, but to retaining all of its, uh, its features and surfaces, uh, what are we thinking when we watch it play chess or play basketball or whatever the pose happens happens to be? Um, a lot of the, the the personality is taken away when mm-hmm. you remove the skin from it. It becomes more of an anatomical specimen than a person. If you have any any lingering concerns about who was this this guy, this this girl, you know, in their former life, and and did this is something they wanted for themselves, those tend to, those thoughts tend to come later after you have uh, left the facility. Yeah, according to Jane Desmond, uh, she's a professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois and an author on a paper on this very topic. She says this process of subtraction that's taken away all the social markers, in a sense, idealizes and universalizes these individuals so that symbolically they come to stand for undifferentiated humans, which allows us to look with impunity impunity because we're not really looking at the person or an individual. And she says, in many ways, we don't see graphic images of death. We see fictionalized images of death. Yeah. And I would also add that that the bodies exhibit in the, in the way that these these cadavers are are frozen in time like this. They're more symbols of life than death. You're seeing like this eternally living uh, sam- sample of physiology before you. You're not seeing a rotting body. You're seeing this eternally fresh red, uh, you know, just right off the meat counter body. That's I, I love the, the way you put that because it really does show you the distance that we have put between ourselves and death. We mm-hmm. think we're confronting it because we're seeing the human body, which is no, no longer alive, mm-hmm. laid bare. But really, we are immortalizing it. Yeah, and I imagine that's not what uh, Gunther von Hagens, the German physician and anatomist uh, that created the bodies exhibit, really wanted for us. Uh, Gunther von Hagen seems like a guy who's all about confronting death. He himself often talks about his uh, inevitable uh, demise uh, from Parkinson's disease. 
So it's it's interesting that he's created something that distances us from death rather than brings us closer to our understanding of it. Well, and in a sense, too, he's immortalizing himself through this act, right? He oh, will yes. live on in history as the person who came up with this plastination technique, which allowed people to really view uh, cadavers in various ways, whether or not they were reconfigured to look like they were playing sports mm-hmm. or maybe one section of their body was cut up so much so that you could really see the tissues in a way that had never really been displayed before. Yes. So I wanted to bring up this this um, idea by Bernd Heinrich, and I'm reading a, a book by him right now called Everlasting Life, and it's about insect and animal death, and it's really interesting. And he says that human death is becoming more and more divorced from nature. We pump our dead with polluting chemicals like formaldehyde. We put them into airtight boxes and then plant them in precious real estate that could be used for agriculture. We think we're denying death that way. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I've I've thought this for some time. It's just uh, we go to these r- remarkable means to distance ourselves not only from the the decay of the body, but uh, but also from the act of of dying. I mean, we have whole institutions in place so that we don't have to confront the realities of physical death. Right. So much so to the point that we're embalming ourselves yeah. in this hope that there's some sort of immortality available to us. And that's what we're going to talk about today, this idea of immortality, why it's problematic and why we need this story of immortality. Yeah, and, and, and arguably why immortality and the quest for immortality is at the heart of every human endeavor. Now, We'll, we'll put that to you at the end of the uh, the episode. If you believe that, that the quest for immortality is, in fact, such a vital part of who we are as humans, or if there's a little more to us. No, like on a day-to-day basis, could it be affecting our decisions? Yeah. We shall see. Now, I, I feel like we should, before we, we go farther, we should discuss our own uh, takes on this. I feel like I probably think about death a lot, and I feel like I've always kind of thought about death. Mm-hmm. Um like I can't remember a time when when I when I didn't think about it, and 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 it's not not like I was encountering death at an early stage in life. I you know I, my life was was comfortably death free for uh, for the longest period of time. Mm-hmm. But it seems like there's always been a kind of confrontation of it, at least in the media that I've consumed throughout my life. So it seems like I've I've always been there with it. Yeah, I, I have said before that this podcast has had me thinking about it quite a bit um, since we began, mm-hmm. although... I am difficult to work with. <laughs> right, right. God, oh, just bring me death. No, uh, but more in, from the route of consciousness, because I equate, you know, non-consciousness, not so much sleep mm-hmm. uh, or, or even uh, coma with death, but, you know, basically when you start thinking about consciousness and life and you begin to try to center where all this is coming from, inevitably you will land on the death card and start to think about that. So when we struck upon this talk by Stephen Cave, who has uh, a book out about immortality, and and he discusses these various ways in which we approach immortality, it really struck me because he says that we can't help it. We humans have several different ways that we create this narrative of immortality. And he says, really, there are four different types of it. One, really well-known, 
in fact, it's a pretty historical one. I think everybody is familiar with resurrection, this idea that you might come back to life after dying. And this is a belief that is found in various religions. Uh, we're talking about a literal resurrection of the body, of yep. the body, but also a heavenly resurrection or a recycling of the soul into a new body and time, which leads to different ideas about what this resurrection could be. Yeah, this one's pretty uh, pretty fabulous because, it, it, again, it's a part of the three major uh, Judeo-Christian religions, I mean, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam. And it's the idea that resurrection, life after death, involves you being born again in this body or perhaps in another body just like this one. And we, it, it's often... It's often something that you end up skimming over within those faiths. You end up being told, all right, yeah, you know, there's a bodily resurrection, but you really end up buying into other ideas of resurrection that we'll discuss. Um, because there's so many complications, you get into questions of, well, well which version of me, which, which body is going to come back? Am I coming back as this, this rotting body or this, uh, this preserved body? What happens if something happens to the body? Mm-hmm. If the body's not, not, uh, not prepared properly for burial, if it's not buried the right way, if it's lost, you get into all these concerns. And then you get into all these additional theological concerns. Well, what happens to my soul when it's not in a body? Is there an intermediate place that it goes to? Mm-hmm. And we touched on some of the additional issues in our, our episode on hell, on the problem of hell, when uh, you start figuring out, well, where does the, a soul go when it goes to hell? Because a lot of these interpretations of hell also require you to have a physical body again in order for it to work. Work, and then in some cases, your soul is destroyed. It's a logistical yeah. nightmare. It is. Because, yes, you, like you said, you know, is the body going to come back exactly as it was? What about the soul? Do they match up? And this is really interesting. Stephen Cave had pointed this out in his talk that Romans would get so annoyed with early Christians about <laughs> this idea of resurrection that they would say, okay, you think this guy's coming back? Well, let me chop him up to bits and pieces and bury him in various locations throughout these lands, and we'll see if he gets resurrected bodily. Yeah. You know, resurrect that. <laughs> it was kind of mean-spirited by the Romans, you have to admit, though. They were trying to prove a point, but yes, it was. Yeah, um, yeah anytime, you're, anytime you're chopping up a, a, a corpse just to spite your, uh, your, your adversary, it's, you're, you're in a weird area and you need to rethink where you are. But, but to your point... Uh, it does, uh, it's just one slice of the cake when you're looking at the, the, the problems and trying to uh, square away um, how bodily resurrection, resurrection would work. And then you've got that soul, the yes. idea that this soul might persist. Yeah, this, now the idea that there is this, uh, this part of us that is spirit, that's of course and is a very ancient idea. You look back to the, the, the ancient Egyptians, you look back to even more primitive models, uh, and you'll see this idea that uh, there's something in us that lives on. Now, there's sort of, uh, now, Cave focuses on just one version of this, but they're, they're according to some uh, other experts, they're, they're kind of two. One is the idea of an astral body. Now, that's the idea that when we're alive, we're, we're just kind of this conjoined thing. We have two bodies. We have a physical body and an astral body living as one. And then when that physical body dies, this astral body lives on to, uh, to mourn for our own death, to maybe haunt somewhere, to say goodbye to loved ones, to go off wandering through the universe, what have you. Uh, but, uh, and, and it's and it's worth noting this is the idea this is the the immortality this is the life after death that is most commonly encountered in works of fiction. Mm-hmm. Jacob Marley's ghost that is essentially an astral body. It's really convenient. Yeah, because your your body dies and then there's this sort of see through you that looks mm-hmm. just like you. It's it's uh, Hamlet's ghost, and it's also 
a kind of version of life after death that we often end up buying into, at least a little bit, you know, now and again, despite what we believe, uh, you know, based on our faith, based on our science, based on our reason. Mm-hmm. As we discussed in our Hell episode, uh, it's, it's rare for someone to really have one solid idea of what they think the soul is and mm-hmm. what the, the the afterlife may or may not consist of, we're, we're likely to dabble as humans. We're likely to entertain certain ideas mm-hmm. or believe in things on one level while we don't believe in them on the other. And the astral body is one of them. Now, from the astral body, we get into the idea of the immaterial soul. Now, what's the difference? The difference is that the astral body is like, my body dies and here's this version of me, that spirit that looks just like me. But the immaterial soul doesn't necessarily look like a body. It's just like it's an energy. It's it can't be perceived by the senses, and and it uh, and it, it doesn't need the body to exist. Right, and that idea dates back, uh, at least in a formal form, to Plato. So again, Im- immaterial soul, astral body. It's a great literary device, right? Because yeah. you can really call into that presence. But there's this idea that we all have that there's this core to ourselves. Yeah, you know that perhaps could persist beyond us, that what makes me, me, certainly couldn't die uh, with my physical body. Yeah, and Plato was really into it uh, based on two core arguments. One was the cycle of opposites. This is the idea that 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 everything in the natural world has, has an opposite, and these opposites are often interlocked. So death comes from life, and therefore life must come from death. And uh, and the other the other argument he makes is uh, is reminiscence, and this is the idea that that the view of learning is really the process of remembering knowledge from past lives, which um, you know you could take that in different interpretations. You could just go with a straight up, um, um, you know, hippy dippy past lives kind of view, where you know I've been uh, an Egyptian king in my past life, or you can maybe even look at that from a sort of a genetic counterpoint. That's one of the interesting things when you start looking at at some of these ideas of immortality, like what. Uh, um, you know, what is reminiscence but uh, but epigenetic or genetic influences yeah. on who you are? I right. Mean, you can sort of go wild with sort of breaking these down and trying to apply them. Yeah, to you're not going to have your grandmother's um, sort of or great-grandmother's ghostly experiences, but, as you say, you might have epigenetic markers mm-hmm. of her physical experience manifest themselves in you later in physical ways in which genetics get turned on and off. So that's very interesting. The third way that Cave says that we are chasing immortality is that we're trying to solve death. And he says this has been going on for time immemorial. You've got alchemy, and now you have all sorts of different technologies today. You have nanotechnology. Mm -hmm. You have different ways of delivering drugs to the system. We've talked about this with Aubrey de Grey, who says that the first person uh, to live to 500 years old has already been born today because we have these sort of technologies that can maintain our bodies like a classic car and you start to think about this you think oh, our ancestors lived to be 40 years old mm-hmm. we now have a life expectancy of 80 years old currently right now um is this a kind of moore's law of life expectancy that is emerging the you know moore's law of the idea that computer processing can be doubled every two years so in the same way you know every x amount of decades is human life extending by 20 years yeah, he makes an impressive argument, and uh, and he also takes the 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 war against death, uh, which is that's a whole topic in and of itself, which mm-hmm. maybe I'll, I'll mention in a bit. But he breaks it down into into core, uh, arguably winnable battles. Like uh, this is what death is. This is what is happening on a physical level to the body, and here are the areas where we can we could fight it. We figured, you know, and we've discussed in the past uh, past episodes, so I'll refer you back to that for all the details. Aubrey de Grey and yeah. his ways to vanquish death. Yeah. yeah. 
So um, the fourth type of immortality that Stephen Cave says we we are after is narrative. And this is what we were sort of alluding to with the bodies exhibit. Mm -hmm. Here we have this kind of narrative unfolding that will ensure some sort of immortality of this story of the bodies that are displayed of the person who created this plastination technique. Yeah, it's the idea that even though everything that we are is going to cease to exist at some point, the things that we created, the things that we influenced are going to live on, um, you know, not forever, but at least for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And, and are, you know, close enough to forever for the, uh, you know, for that brief life that we have. Yeah, again, this idea that through achievement by becoming so famous uh, that your your name lives on. Yeah, or infamous. It, that's right. And, you know, and if you infamy. can't get the fame, go for the infamy. It's generally easier to achieve. Which, as we will discuss in a little bit, could be tied up with the ways that we behave. Mm-hmm. All right, before we uh, go into that and this idea of being terrified of death and something called terror management theory, let's take a quick break. All right, we are back. And uh, before we get into terror management theory, we have to talk about someone named Ernest Becker. Yes, Ernest Becker, and uh, he is the author of the book, The Denial of Death. And this is where we get the idea of terror management theory, or TMT. That's right. He was an anthropologist. He actually won a Pulitzer Prize for that work. It's a 1973 work. And among other things, Becker, Becker proposed that in times of crisis, when fears of death are aroused, people are more likely to embrace leaders who provide psychological security by making their citizens feel like they are valued contributors to a great mission to eradicate evil. And that is what this terror management theory is built on. It was proposed by a uh, social psychologist in 1986, Jeff Greenberg, Tom Pazinski, and Sheldon Solomon. And it was initiated by two really simple questions. The first one was, why do people have such a great need to feel good about themselves? And two, why do people have so much trouble getting along with those people who have different ideas from them? Yeah, this is a fascinating theory and one that really, uh, really drives home a lot of uh, what you end up seeing in the world around you, especially as far as fear mongering. Yeah. Because when political voices, when media voices start beating the war drums, start mongering up all of that fear, they're playing into TMT. That's right. Sheldon Solomon, who is one of the um, authors of, of terror management theory, in an interview with John O'Leary for Scientific American said, quote, although self-awareness gives rise to unbridled awe and joy, it can also lead to the potentially overwhelming dread engendered by the realization that, wait for this, it gets so brutal, that death is inevitable, that it, it can occur for reasons that can never be anticipated or controlled, and that humans are corporeal creatures breathing pieces of defecating meat no more significant or enduring than porcupines or peaches. But he says that humans, as ingenious as we are, have uh, actually unconsciously solved this existential dilemma by developing cultural worldviews. This has been our savior when we are met with this kind of terror. Yeah, and the worldview doesn't. It, we're not just talking about views on what ha- you know the state of the soul and, mm-hmm. the, and the afterlife, but also views about. What is important in life? Mm-hmm. What is, uh, you know, what are the values I hold to? What, uh, what is the, the us group that I'm a part of? And what are the other groups outside of my worldview, outside of this, this sphere that I've built for myself, uh, with ideas, this fortress of ideas? Uh, this, this whole, uh, TMT issue, uh, terror management theory really brings to mind a scene from 
Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, the Willy Wonka movie. Okay. Uh, you know the the scene where they they drink the fizzy lifting uh, 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 liquid. Yes. Fizzy liquid juice or uh, soda or whatever it's it's called. They're in this this huge cylindrical room, right? Mm -hmm. They drink this uh, this stuff and they start floating and they're floating amid the bubbles and it's all fun and games until they realize that there is a a big circular fan at the top of the room and Mm -hmm. that if they keep floating up, they're going to be chopped to pieces. So as they float up and up, they suddenly become aware. You know, at first it's just all dreams and and giggles. Oh, Mm -hmm. I'm floating around. It's wonderful. But then they realize they're going to die. And then so what do they start doing then? They start figuring out how am I going to stop? How am I going to, what am I going to do? And so what do you, what, what do you do in that state? The only thing you can do is reach out and try and grab the structures around you. And in these, in this case, the structures are these worldviews that we've built for ourselves. Things that, that, that seem or we've certainly built up to be solid, something to, to give us some grounding about our place in the universe, about what's important, why it's important. Yeah. And, 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 and why life itself is important. Yeah, Solomon says that we manage this this potentially paralyzing terror resulting from this awareness of death, that mm-hmm. fan that we're being sucked into, and that cultures provide three things. One, meaning by offering an account of the origin of the universe. Two, a blueprint for acceptable conduct on mm-hmm. Earth, right? Three, a promise of immortality, symbolically, um, and it could be by a creation of, say, a large monument, great works of art or science, fortunes, having children, mm-hmm. and liter- literally through various kinds of afterlives that are a central piece of organized religions. And so the testable idea here is if you confront someone with death, are you going to can, can you actually observe them? Reaching out and clinging to that structure, clinging to those worldviews that they might have, uh, you know, otherwise, otherwise drift a comfortable distance away from. And is this immortality narrative, is it on some level destructive? Yeah, and then the hidden question in that is, uh, are most worldviews, uh, in their, uh, in their more literal interpretation destructive? But I'll leave that to, to our listeners to consider. Yeah. I mean, because, again, we're talking about conceiving of death in very abstract terms. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we fly too close to that sun of death, you know, we, we, we do get singed by it and we recoil in back into ourselves and back into that immortality narrative. And the thing that makes us fly too close to that sun of death is something called mortality salience. Yeah. And that's just straight up that moment when you realize, hey, I'm going to die. The, the closer you are to the reality uh, and the, the well, maybe not acceptance of death, but at least the confrontation of death. Now, Solomon says that there's a, a huge body of evidence that shows that just that momentarily uh, thinking about death, typically by asking people to think about themselves dying, intensifies people's strivings to protect and bolster the aspects of the worldviews that they coddle and hold dear. Yeah, I mean, it's it, we, we all encounter little bits of this in our own life, you know. Something something bad happens in the world, or you hear you hear a story about someone else in in your city or your neighborhood dying or suffering uh, some sort of uh, bad bit of luck, and then suddenly you're a little more like, ooh, well, maybe I should, uh, may, you know, maybe I should go home and check on the house. Maybe I should, uh, uh, you know, upgrade the security systems. Maybe I should do this, that, or the other. Suddenly, the the threats in life become a little more real. And it's changed your behavior, right? Yeah. You go out and you get a security system. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there have been 300 independent studies about mortality, salience, and whether or not it affects our behavior and in 20 different countries that has lent support to this idea of terror management theory. 
But perhaps one of the first studies is the most startling in its ability to show people doubling down on their beliefs when they think that they've been violated and they're reminded at death at the same time. And Solomon and his team pursued this with a group of judges. Yes, this uh, took place in uh, Tucson, Arizona, and uh, it, invo- it involved actually recruited court judges because they wanted people who, whose job it is, uh, in, in theory, to make uh, unbiased decisions about uh, about issues of, uh, well, if not mortality, then at least uh, you know, you know, ethics and, 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 and law. Yeah, rational thinkers. Yeah. So, uh, so what do they confront them with? Uh, a nice sort of a nice gray area, a nice a nice mortal quandary for anyone to to chew over prostitution. Of course, okay, we're talking about twenty two municipal court judges, and they were told that in the study <clears throat> that the the team was studying the relation between personality traits, attitudes, and bond decisions. Bond mm-hmm. decisions, of course, being that sum of money that uh, judges will assign that a defendant pays prior to trial so that they can be released from prison. So what did they do? Well, they gave judges a uh, set of questionnaires that consisted of the standard personality assessment Mm -hmm. instruments, but they also squeaked in a couple of those mortality salients in there. And they did it by asking um, them to say, please briefly describe the emotions that the thought of your own death arouses in you. And the second one was jot down as specifically as you can what you think will happen to you as you physically die and once you are physically dead. Now, only half of those 22 judges were given these sort of doctored personality questions that had that mortality, mortality salience in them. So then each of the judges review the brief. They, re- they review this case of this uh, individual brought in on a prostitution charge, mm-hmm. and they have to decide where they're going to set the bond, right? How much money is the, uh, is, the, is the individual going to have to pay in order to walk the streets again? That's right. Judges in the control condition set an average bond of $50. These are the people who did not have the reminders of death. Mm-hmm. And that's a typical charge for this kind of case. Right. But the judges who thought about their death set an average bond of $455. Yeah, so I'd like to like for you again, imagine that, that room in uh, the Willy Wonka movie. Uh, and here are the judges. He's, he's flo- he or she is floating free amid the bubbles. You know, and and they they're thinking, oh well, prostitution. It's a, it's a gray or it's a very complicated issue. Uh, you know, a nice low bond is a, is an acceptable place uh, uh, for me to de- to to, uh, to decide on this particular topic. Mm-hmm. Then they're made to look up. They see the fan. They think about in, imminent death. And what do they do? They reach out. They hold onto that structure, that uh, that that worldview structure that's made out of morals and uh, and ethics and ideas about what's wrong and right in life. Maybe some of these ideas are things that they have they've drifted away from a lot in their life. You know, they've, they've drifted away from in their professional career. But just thinking about death makes them cling back to that uh, that skeleton of ideas and then make this uh, this this rougher call on what the bond should be set at. And the problem is that it can really cloud your thinking, right? Yeah. And it can actually, like, this is the real problem, it can cause a person to be easily manipulated. Mm-hmm. And this is where Becker's early work really comes into play concerning fear and politics. And it's something that Solomon actually followed up on with experiments in which participants were told to review statements from and vote for one of three political candidates. Okay, And they had different leadership styles. We're talking about charismatic, task oriented and relationship oriented. Uh, The participants then selected the candidate that they would vote for. Now, in the control condition, 
those people who didn't get the death reminders, only four of 95 participants voted for the charismatic candidate. Now, for those people who were given the the death um, reminder, there was an almost 800% increase in votes for the charismatic leader. And Solomon, again, followed up with several other studies concerning President Bush II and John Kerry and found again and again that when those death reminders were subliminally or overtly inserted, Bush's support levels soared. The charismatic candidate. So, again, we're reminded of death. We end up clinging to, to these worldviews. Uh, it's 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 fascinating and, and frightening to think about because it really breaks down what's happening in the world around us, I mean, on both a large and a small level. Certainly when we see uh, the media or a politician, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mongering up uh, uh, the, the, those feelings of insecurity and fear, mm-hmm. but but also like the smaller moments in life, like when you see some sort of really severe attitude on something suddenly come out of a person that, that you, and you didn't expect it. Like for instance, an example of this, I was... Uh, I, w- I was hearing uh, somebody talk about encountering this guy who suddenly, out of nowhere, uh, mentioned that he didn't think that his uh, his son should wear pink, uh, just in case it would have some sort of uh, a negative uh, influence on his character mm-hmm. for for an, an, an infant to wear the color pink. Uh, and and the the individual who said this was somebody that, that when they they would normally look at him, they think, oh, well, this this is just a normal dude. This guy mm-hmm. doesn't have any weird hangups, but. And, but now that I, after I've you know really read about this uh, this TMT about TMT and its effects on us, you can easily imagine uh, this this being a guy who maybe grew up with that kind of severe worldview in his uh, in, in the backbone of his of his uh, his views on life. He's drifted away from them, but then something like having a child uh, bring him a little closer to that mortality, make him have to think about that, and therefore uh, force him to cling to uh, some of these uh, these ideas and notions that he normally would have uh, drifted away from. Yeah, and you can look at heteronorms, really, the, mm-hmm. the basis of that is being um, motivated from fear. Yeah. Fear of the other. So, And by the way, pink used to be a, a color that w- men wore, like yeah. back in the day. I think Josh Clark actually has an article on that. Uh, so it's a delightful color. I, I wish you know. I, I wish everyone would be cool with it. Yeah. Except for that Pepdol Bismol one. Yeah, that just, then that just reminds you of throwing up. Yeah, yeah, and that's a shade that's often found in hospitals too, which I find really disconcerting. But anyway, that's for another day. Yeah, color color theory. That's that would be a whole other episode that we should probably do someday. We yeah. probably should. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is that we can't help but cling to these immortality myths, these narratives. Uh, in his piece for the New York Times, Cave actually wrote this opinion, opinion piece uh, that looks at the BBC show Torchwood, which examines immortality and death, and says, what would happen to all our death-defying systems if there were no more death? We would have no need for progress or art, faith or fame, Suddenly, we would have nothing to do, yet in the greatest of ironies, we would have endless eons in which to do it. Action would lose its purpose and time its value. This is the true awfulness of immortality. Yeah, this is uh, this is where we get into the, the really deep, far future gazing stuff. Where For, for a while, there's been that idea that, okay, if we could live forever, we just get bored. What would we do? Now, on one hand, I definitely buy that, I, because I... I like to think of, of books, for instance. Uh, we've all read a book that's, that really strikes a chord with us. We're really digging it. And on some level, we think, man, I wish this book would never end because I'm enjoying it that much. But of course, books follow, uh, 
a certain pattern. There's a narrative arc. There's a there's a story that has to be told. There are pinpoints that have to be hit. There's rising action. There's falling action. There's a climax, uh, etc. And and so it has to follow that basic pattern in order to be effective. And that's why you're loving it so much. Yeah. Because because it is obeying a form and function. If it went on forever, then it would lose that form and function, and then it would lose its effect to uh, to to entertain you. So, and I feel like life is sort of like that. You know, there has to be a, a short amount of time in which to accomplish things. There has to be a, um, uh, rising action and falling action for it all to make sense. But then, on the other hand, when when mortals say, "Oh, immortality probably sucks because you probably would get bored," it does sort of sound like. Uh, like us non-celebrities, us non-super-rich uh, you know, people thinking, oh, well, those rich people, they're, they're just all miserable anyway. Where deep down, we, we, we like to think, but if I had it, if I had that money, if I had that immortality, well, I could probably do something proper with it. It's the, true. Yeah, the lottery might destroy the average person because it's just too much money and, t- and just totally right, right. destroys their lives. But me, I think I might be able to pull it off because I'm I'm a little more grounded. I, mean, I, I feel like we, we all have the, those feelings. That is. It's the fantasy. It's, again, the immortality fantasy that we all have, that if we could just reach it, we would do something worthwhile with it. Now, in the meantime, we have mortality to deal with. And so mm-hmm. the question becomes, is there a better way to deal with our own mortality rather than play into fear? I mean, narratives of immortality are great, but is yeah. there a way to be rational about death and not distance ourselves from it? Really examine it and, and be okay with it. Well, I think what you're talking about here is simply, can we talk about it? Can we yeah. have conversations about death? And can we, you know, if not actually drag the bodies out into the open and, uh, you know, and, and pull them apart. Can we at least drag the topic out in the open and pull it apart? Yeah. Now, um, Becker of The Denial of Death, which was written in 1973, said, stripping away the distractions of death, quote, with the right intensity and scope of shock, we might even ask ourselves, what are we to do with our lives? We might then begin to think of how, again, to give to people a secure feeling that their lives count that there is a heroic human condition, contribution to be made to cosmic life in a dialogue with the community of one's fellows. I thought it was very nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, in, in a way, it's it's about taking the, the punch out of death, you know, uh, because in, in all this distancing ourselves from it, which we've done just throughout human history, we end up giving it so much more power. We, I mean, the very act of personifying death, of creating this kind of like grim reaper image that either exists as an actual symbol or at least or an abstract symbol in, in the, the human psyche. It comes from, from this point in our, in time where we, we get away from the idea that death is something that our body does mm-hmm. and rather it's something external. Death is something that happens to us. Death is something that's done to us. It's an enemy that can be fought and can be defeated and should be feared rather than a natural part right. of the arc. You can actually meet up at something called a death cafe. Yeah. If you wanted to discuss this. And if you go to death.com, you will be met with the message at death cafes. People drink tea, eat cake and discuss death. Our aim is to increase awareness of death to help people make the most of their finite lives. You can find meetups in your city. I would hope we all listen. We all wear black and listen to Einstein's into new as well. Like it seems like that would be a good, good vibe. I'm getting a very, German vibe from all of this. I don't know. I'm getting some like some Red Hat Society people. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. yeah cheer- cheerful discussions. Yeah. Death, instead of going to nonsense and um, celebrating, you know, your <laughs> passage into menopause, why not go to the Death Cafe? That may be something that I do instead of doing the Red Hat thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm planning ahead. Well, you know, you should definitely check one of these out and then report back. I mean, our listeners should do the same. I was thinking about that, actually. You know, the one thing I always come back to is a um, is, is something my dad told me. And he said, uh, and he was talking about death at some point. And he said, well, you know, everybody does it, so it couldn't be that big of a deal. And uh, and and certainly, I mean, that's the case. Everybody dies. And I don't even necessarily buy into this idea that there there's anyone alive today that's going to live to see 600 years old or much less that 6,000 year point that actuaries uh, have uh, have figured out that if you could live forever, Mm -hmm. like 6,000 is pretty much the maximum you get to without dying in a car wreck or something. Um, Yeah, I saw that. But then I don't know. There's so many problems I I have with that. Yeah, Um, it's uh, the other way of looking at it. The more sort of cosmic way to think about it is you have existence and you have non-existence and Throughout human history, each of us has not existed. And then for just a, a, an instant, we've existed, and then we're going to not exist again. We have l- so much experience at not existing that we sh- we're going to be able to handle it just fine. This is not going to be really a new state for any of us. It's going to be a return to the status quo. Uh, and, and then another way to look at it, too, is to think about the, the nature of time. Uh, and, you know, when we, we talk about, oh, living forever, uh, that you, we want to, to be something that, that lasts in this universe. But as we've discussed before, if you, if you, if you look at time and space and you, you take away the, the human perspective, uh, in time and space are one. And, and there's no moment that has been or will be or is right now that has any, uh, any, any special privilege in the time space continuum. So in a sense, everything is currently, uh, nothing really was or will be. So, Everything's immortal. I mean, it's all a part of the fabric of, of the universe. I always think about it this way. You think that Oprah is, is sort of an immortal being, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows her. All yeah. corners of the earth. Uh, perhaps Bill Gates, even. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're, uh, these sort of iconic images will last for 500 years. A thousand? Yeah. yeah it's Maybe the- 10,000? Doubt it. But, you know, all of this, uh, even this, even these immortality narratives that we come up with are finite. Yeah. Except for Gilgamesh, because that one, uh, which is, you know, one of the, the, like, the oldest story about the quest for immortality, uh, it sticks with us. But otherwise, the Ozymandias principle definitely applies to everybody. No matter how yeah. awesome you are, no matter how much of an impact you make on this life, you're probably going to be forgotten eventually. Now, if anybody's interested in that 6,000-year figure that mm-hmm. we dropped, uh, the actuaries are saying, hey, that's a possibility. I believe that's from the Economist article that... Features Stephen Cave. I'm sorry, I don't have the title with me right now, but if you want to check that out, you can just go to economist.com. All right, so we have presented you with a lot of food for thought about uh, immortality, about the nature of the human soul, about our, about how terror management theory um, affects us. I mean, does the, the, the fear of death and the quest for immortality really influence us at such a deep and impressive level? Uh, it's, it's certainly a strong argument. Um, also, what would happen if we if we could live forever? That's a, a wonderful question to explore. Do you think that we would get bored uh, and uh, and and just lose interest? Do you think that we'd find enough stuff to occupy our minds for three hundred years, six thousand years, or what have you? Do you believe? Do you follow uh, the the, um, the philosophy of Immanuel Kant that uh, who who stated that if uh, that without a belief in God and a belief in uh, the uh, immortal nature of the soul, that there would uh, There'd be no virtue in the world at all. That it's ultimately that that fear of of what will happen to us and what uh, will happen to us long term that it that informs human morality. Or is there a kinder way for yeah. for humans to organize themselves? Also, would you want to live forever? 
I would love to see what the results are from you guys on that one. Well, on that note, let's call over the robot because I have a related bit of listener mail to share here. This came to us uh, through Facebook. Alec writes in and says, Hi, my name's Alec. I love your podcast so much that I've been going back and listening to all the old ones. I recently listened to the Death on Ice podcast, and this brought up so many what-if scenarios. Uh, one I thought of is, what if someone is signed up to be put on ice, uh, you know, uh, chronically uh, frozen, uh, but committed a horrible crime and are put to death by the state? Will they be allowed to be frozen afterwards? Does that count as serving their sentence, e- uh, even if revived later? The other interesting scenario I thought of uh, could uh, make a good future drama or sitcom where the guy's wife dies and is frozen, then he marries again, and him and his current wife are frozen later, and all three are brought back at the same time. That'd be crazy, and that would indeed be for an, uh, make for an awesome futuristic sitcom. But indeed, uh, when we start talking about uh, the idea of living forever or uh, coming back to life uh, in some sort of scientific sense and, all, and with uh, all of its complications, then does life after death and or resurrection and or immortality, do these things become basic human rights or are these just privileges for the elite? Yeah, we talked about this before, that there's a service called Virtual Eternity, which will actually give people different levels of access to your history and maybe even personal messages you want to give to people in your life after you are gone. And it brings up this whole idea of how you'll be represented in this uh, other way once you are gone, Uh, not to mention even just the ability one day to try to download memories or, yes. you know, the, the synaptic uh, flashes that form that. And if you want to see a really cool fictional examination of, of that scenario, uh, check out the Black Mirror episode. I'll be right back. Really top notch. But in the meantime, you want to check out all sorts of uh, podcasts that we've done, all the videos, the blog posts, what have you, links to our various social media accounts, including Facebook, Twitter, and all that, you need to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you find everything. That's the mothership. Oh, and I want to add real quick, too, uh, if you're a long-term listener or a new listener uh, and you dig our show uh, and you're an iTunes user, go to iTunes and give us a positive rating because the show's been around for a long time. And, uh, and there's, there are reviews on there from our very early days when we had a different title, different setup, and we were just learning the ropes. Uh, so we could use a little boost in the algorithm there every now and then. So, uh, so check us out. Indeed. And if you'd like to send us a note, you can do so at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 